going to be looking together at the book of Colossians, chapter 2. The book of Colossians, chapter 2. Talking this morning about the great miracle that we who are Christians have experienced. Talking about our resurrection, our new birth. The miracle of regeneration, the miracle of being circumcised in heart. All of these words, all of these phrases, resurrection, new birth, regeneration, spiritual circumcision, these are all words that the Bible uses to describe the same thing. And it's a big thing. That's why it uses so many words to describe it. It's a miracle that has taken place in the hearts of Christians. And there may be some among us this morning who have not experienced that miracle. You've never been born again. You've never been raised from the dead, spiritually speaking. And if that's you, I want you to know that there are men and women in this room who are praying even now that God would do something today revolutionary in your life. And that you you would leave this place a different person than when you came in. And praying that God would do big things things in this service. And if you're agreeing with me in that prayer, say amen. 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 Look with me at the beginning of verse 13. Beginning of verse 13. Notice how God speaks of Christians. Verse 13, just the beginning. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now keep your eyes on the verse and I want you to note some words. Do you see the word you? It's written to Christians, written to believers. Do you see the word were? God, through the Apostle Paul, is speaking in the past tense. Christians, this is who we were. And who were we? We were dead people. We were uncircumcised people. See, here are two different illustrations used to describe who we once were. Non-Christians in this room, this is who you are. These words describe who you are now. You are a living dead person. You are spiritually uncircumcised. And that's a big deal. May God cause you to feel how big a deal that is. It is a scary thing to be a living dead person. It is a scary thing to be spiritually uncircumcised. Do you see the phrase, dead in your trespasses? Friends, we are all trespassers. You know what it is to see a sign on a property that says no trespassing? It means that there are boundaries of that property that you are not to cross. You can come so close, but you must not go any further. There is a line you are not to cross over. In the Bible, we are told that there is a line that we are not to cross over as human beings. And that line is the law of God. That God has set boundaries for us. And He has commanded us not to go over them. In your, in your worship, have no God but Him. Yes, worship. But don't worship any and all gods of your imagination. Worship the one true God and Him alone. There is a line there that we are not to cross. Make no images of Him. Right? 
proclaim his glories, sing his glories, write poetry about his glories. But there is a limit. Don't try and make a sculpture of God. Because any sculpture you make is only going to demean him. Right? So there are, there are things for us to do. There's freedom that God gives us. And yet he says there is a boundary. Don't trespass that boundary. God has graciously revealed to us His name, Yahweh, Jehovah, Jesus. And we have the privilege of praying His name, singing His name, talking to others about His name, but there is a boundary, isn't there? We're not to speak flippantly using His name. We're not to speak of Him in silly jokes. We're not to use His name in a cuss word or in an expression of anger or frustration. We're to treat His name with reverence. And on and on we could go with boundaries that God has set for us. We have seven days a week to live, and yet one day is not for our own worldly pleasure. It is to be set aside for Him. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. There is so much joy to be had in relationships with parents, but you must not dishonor them. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie, do not covet. These are boundaries on our behavior that God is our creator and as the ruler of the universe has every right to set in place. He established the natural laws of gravity and physics, so he has established the moral laws to govern us. And God has done this not because he's a mean God who loves rules. God's boundaries are a gift to us because he loves us. He knows what is best for us, both as individuals and as human societies. He's given us these boundaries in His law. He's placed a big no trespassing sign on certain types of behavior because He knows that if we trespass those boundaries, the result will be death. For the wages of sin is what? What are the wages of sin? Yes, that's right. Imagine a no trespassing sign hanging on a fence. And within that fence is a minefield full of mines spelling certain death for any who enter. God has graciously set forth boundaries around certain types of thinking, certain types of speaking, certain types of behavior. And he's told us not to pass that boundary so that we might not die. And yet, friends... We are all trespassers, aren't we? Rather than heeding God's warning, trusting His knowledge and wisdom and His love for us, we have recklessly ignored His no trespassing signs given in the Ten Commandments and throughout the Bible. And instead, we have run just full speed into the minefield. We've worshipped other gods, like work and play and families and sports and houses and bodies. We've lied. We've treated others with murderous intents in our heart. We've lived happily, contentedly in sin. And you know what? We aren't dead because we've done those things. We do those things because we're dead. Adam, our father, walked into the minefield. And ever since then, the human race has been a race of spiritually dead people. 
It's very clear, isn't it? Colossians 2, verse 13. Natural human beings are dead. This is who we were. When Adam sinned, we all died. Adam's sin was the human race rebelling against a holy, holy, holy God, a righteous judge. And through him, through Adam, we have made ourselves enemies of God. And a death sentence has been issued upon us. And spiritually speaking, we are dead. Non-Christian in this room. You are a dead person. To which you say, Justin, I don't feel very dead. I know you don't. Listen to John Stott. Lots of people who make no Christian profession whatsoever, who even openly repudiate Jesus Christ, appear to be very much alive. One has the vigorous body of an athlete. The other, the lively mind of a scholar. A third, the vivacious personality of a film star. Are we to say that such people, if Christ has not saved them, are dead? Yes, indeed we must and do say this very thing. For in the sphere which matters supremely, which is neither the body, nor the mind, nor the personality, but the soul, they have no life. And you can tell it. They are blind to the glory of Jesus Christ and deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God, no sensitive awareness of His personal reality, no leaping of their spirit towards Him in the cry, Abba, Father, no longing for fellowship with His people. They are as unresponsive to God as a corpse. So we should not hesitate to affirm that a life without God, however physically fit or mentally alert the person may be, is a living death. And that those who live it are dead, even while they are living. Dear lost friend, do you see how God describes you? Do you see yourself living with no regard for Him? You may have regard for some God of your own imaginings, but the God of the Bible, the God that really exists, the God of holy, holy, holiness, the God of purity and sovereignty and justice, that is a God you don't think much about. You do not seriously look to His Word for instruction. You seldom pray to Him for help. When it comes to decisions, your will versus His will, your will typically wins out. Because if we were to tell the truth, down deep you just trust yourself more than you trust Him. You have a heart of stone that is as dead as a rock to His Word and to His will. But look at the other descriptor that God uses. Because not only does Paul say that we were dead in our trespasses, he says we were uncircumcised in our flesh. Do you see it in verse 13? See it? Justin's not making this up. There it is. Verse 13. This isn't Pastor Justin's diagnosis of you. This is God's diagnosis of us. What does this mean? Well, you might not know a flip about spiritual circumcision, but you probably at least know something about physical circumcision, namely that it includes the removal of flesh. What if I told you that that's exactly what spiritual circumcision is? That the Bible uses this word flesh to refer to our rebellious, unbelieving, stubborn human nature that will not submit to God. 
Christians, the flesh is the old man, the person you used to be, the way you used to live. And for non-Christians, it's who you are now. And God has called you to die to who you are now. Can you handle that? God has called you to cut off your flesh. God has called you to come to a point where you cannot live another moment being you. God, by His Holy Spirit, through the message of Christ crucified for sinners, does this great work. Christian, He brought you and me to a place in our lives where suddenly, just suddenly, we hated our sin. Now, maybe you didn't experience it suddenly. Maybe you experienced it gradually. But there was a moment, a moment when your heart went from loving sin and caring little about God to suddenly you were beginning to care about God and your sin suddenly wasn't as pleasurable to you as it used to be. Suddenly you hated the way you'd been living. You hated your bad attitude. You hated your addictions. You hated your self-centeredness and your worldly perspective. And you, you wanted it to go away. You wanted it to die. You wanted it to be cut off so that you could live for God. And if you experienced that miracle, that was God changing you at the root of who you are. That's the gift of spiritual circumcision. It's kind of like this. Imagine a man, prideful attitude, Angry words, lustful thoughts, he does selfish, manipulative things, and his heart is full of these things, and it's, it's from his heart that all these attitudes and thoughts and words come. Well, when God spiritually changes a person, when God spiritually circumcises a person, he doesn't immediately change the actions, thoughts, and words. He changes the heart, where it all springs from. And then... This change of heart begins to show itself, doesn't it? It shows itself immediately in that now the heart no longer takes pleasure in sin as it used to, and it shows itself over time as our attitudes and thoughts and words and actions begin to change. This is the killing of the old man. This is the putting away of the flesh. And some of you in here have experienced that miracle, and right now you are living in its after effects. The root of you has been changed, and now the fruit is beginning to change of your life. Others of you in here perhaps have not. You've never experienced this miracle. You are still a slave to sin. You are driven by your own will, and you are in love, absolutely ravished in love with things that are not going to last forever and are not worthy of your love. Like golf and playstations and whatever it may be for you. For those of you who were here last week, the point of last week's message was that in order for God to be gracious to sinners, to step in and change them, to bless them with, with rising them from the dead or circumcising their heart, whichever illustration you want to use, Paul uses both. But in order for God to bless sinners, His justice had to be satisfied. We did not deserve to be made new, did we, Christians? Did we deserve the miracle of being born again? No. We deserved hell. 
And the only reason God could bless us like this and still be a just God is that Jesus Christ stood for us in His death. And as He bore the hell we deserved in our place, He was making it possible for God to be both just and our justifier. For God to be both righteous and punishing sin and able to bless us with a new heart. Jesus, think about it this way. I love thinking about it this way. Jesus' death secured our death. That is, the death of our old man. The death of our flesh. Here was the plan of God from eternity past that He would give authority to Jesus. Son, all authority is given to you. And Jesus, with all of the authority from the Father, would send the Holy Spirit to circumcise people's hearts and to cause them to be born again through the Gospel. But Jesus' death was the centerpiece of this plan. The moment that had to happen in order for the floodgates of God's blessings to come down. If the cross hadn't happened, God could not justly open up the floodgates and let the blessings come. He would have been an unholy God, an unrighteous God. Not God. When Jesus died, think about this and rejoice. When Jesus died, it guaranteed that every child of God would die as well to their flesh. And so we have verses like Galatians 2.20 that many of you know by heart. For I have been crucified with Christ. We have chapters like Romans 6 and Romans 7 that are all about the death to our old selves. How we have died to the flesh and are now a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away. Well, this morning we have the rest of the story right here in Colossians 2.13. For not only did Christ's death bring about our death, but Christ's resurrection brought about our resurrection. Jesus stood for us Christians not only on the cross but He stood for us in the tomb when He got out of it. His death guaranteed that we too would die to our flesh our old sinful selves and when God gave Jesus life in that empty tomb it guaranteed that all God's people would indeed receive spiritual life as well. When Jesus was in the tomb, you do understand, he was really dead. You understand that he wasn't pretending to be dead. He wasn't sleeping. He was really dead. His body was cold and stiff. The reason those ladies were carrying spices to the tomb on Sunday morning is because dead bodies stink. Jesus was truly dead. And remember, the plan was that Jesus would be the mediator between God and man, the one to whom God would give all authority. And Jesus, with this authority, would, would, through, would rise up people through the Holy Spirit to carry the gospel to the world. And then he would work through his spirit to cause the gospel to be heard and understood. And he would work through his spirit to give new life and to save people, to forgive their sins and to bring them to heaven. All of this authority to give us new life and save us was to go to Jesus Christ. And here is Jesus, dead. Dead. 
This is not a king ready and able to send the Spirit into people's souls. This is not a king ready and able to circumcise people's hearts. This is not a king who can cause people to be born again. Jesus was dead, and as long as he was dead, our hope of being made spiritually alive to God was dead too. You understand that? We weren't just saved at the cross, folks. We were saved at the tomb too. Because in a moment, because God was pleased with his beloved son, because God was satisfied that the Son had accomplished the purpose for which He had come, God the Father gave His Son life. Acts 13.30 is one of the shortest verses of the Bible and one of the best. Seven words in English. But God raised Him from the dead. And Jesus' resurrection so guaranteed that we His people would be resurrected spiritually that God can say in verse 13 of Colossians 2, that God made us alive together with Him. When Jesus arose from the dead, He arose the victor. There was now no obstacle in the way of Christ saving His people. The hard thing, the satisfying of God's justice had been done. Now there was no devil, no sin, no enemy that could now stop God's plan. God's people would be circumcised in heart. God's people would be saved. Christ's resurrection secured the new life of all God's people. Old Testament and New Testament. It was retroactive in that sense. I hope you're getting this. Friends, our salvation, our new life in Christ, our forgiveness of sin, our eternity in heaven, you could go on and on and on with the blessings of salvation, couldn't you? Right? All of these blessings, every good and amazing gift that God has given to us was purchased for, Christ, purchased for us by Christ at the cross and guaranteed to be ours by His resurrection from the dead purchased at the cross by His blood and guaranteed for us at the resurrection. Death has been defeated. Who can now keep your Savior from giving you everything that God intends? Who now stands in the way of Jesus saving His bride, the church, blessing her, making her beautiful for Himself, bringing her to Himself? Who will stand in the way now of Christ building His church and saving His people? I'll tell you who can stand in the way now. No one. No heart is too cold. No sin is too great. No enemy is too big. Jesus will save His people. He will give new life to all He chooses. As, John, as Jesus said in John 10, verse 27, My sheep hear My voice. And I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's a done deal because of the two. So what does this new life look like? Because Jesus is raised and now has authority to send the Holy Spirit and raise people from the dead spiritually, what does this new life look like? Well, if this has happened to you, God has moved into your heart. His Spirit resides in you. God in you. You can faint now. At such a thought. 
that your heart is the holy of holies now. The place where God dwells in power. His Spirit is finishing up the work that began when you were born again. The core of who you are has been changed and now the Spirit is causing that new heart of yours to grow in faith, grow in hope, grow in love. And as it's growing in all these things, it's resulting in new affections, new modes of speech, new types of behavior, new desires. Look with me at Colossians 3, verses 5 through 10. Look with me at what you as a Christian are now able to do. Just look at verse 5. Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passionate, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Do you see how Christ has set you free from your sin? Do you see how you have been spiritually raised to life? Now you have the power to rid yourself of all these residual sins that remain in your life. Non-Christian, this is not for you. You cannot put to death these sins. You may kill one of them, but another will take its place. But Christian, because you have the power of God now within you through the Holy Spirit, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, even kill that loose tongue of yours. Even defeat that pride in your heart. No longer do sexual immorality or evil desires or covetous or dishonesty have power over you. By God's grace, you now, by trusting His promises, have power to defeat them by finding greater joy in God than in these things. We could look at Colossians 3, verse 12, right? Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Men, women, boys, and girls, when God has made you a new person, He has made you capable of these things. The Spirit right now is working to produce these things in your life. Don't resist His work. Keep in step with the Spirit by pursuing these things, loving these things, living these things. For they're a great picture of the God who saved you. Heaven will be a world of those things. Dear Christian, right now, God is fitting you for heaven. He has changed you at your root. He has changed the sap that is flowing through you, and He is even now changing the fruit your life is producing so that it is becoming good, it is becoming healthy, it is becoming pleasing in His sight and a blessing to others. So there's our truth. Christian, we have new life, and that new life is ours because of the resurrection of Jesus. Here's some implications. Make just two or three to Christians and then press this to any who here might be unbeliever. Number one, Christian, you are called to believe what God has said about you. God has made you new. Believe it if you're resting in Christ. God has set you free from sin. Therefore, believing what God has said about you, don't lay down and play the wimp when temptations come your way. Fight! Fight temptation! 
Fight temptation by taking delight in the superior pleasure of God and His Word and all He says. But a a wussy Christian who just cowers to sin and just gives in is an oxymoron. Christ died to set you free. You are free. Now live in your freedom. Don't put the shackles back on. If you have trouble controlling your tongue, for example, wage war against it. Pray against your loose tongue. Get your brothers and sisters to hold you accountable. Memorize those proverbs that address the loose tongue. Don't just say, well, that's just who I am. I can't change it. It's like spitting on the cross of Christ. It is, it is isn't it? What do you think he died for? He's, he died so that you would be holy and could go to heaven. Christ died and rose so that you would change and reflect the glory of God. Christians, be warriors. Be warriors against your sin for the glory of God and for the good of those you love around you. Fight! Because the victory is already yours in Jesus Christ. Number two. Christian, be characterized by gratitude for the death and resurrection of Jesus. You deserved the wrath of God, and instead you have His love and mercy. You have God as your Father. You have the freedom to defeat sin. You have freedom from condemnation. You will be with God in heaven forever. Do not cease being grateful. Sing. Boast to others, not in yourself, but in your Jesus and what He's done for you. Love the Gospel. Hold it out to others. Don't be a complainer or a whiner. You lie about God when you do that. You make God look pathetic as if all that He's done for you isn't enough and you're still unhappy. How can that be? The only way we can still complain and whine is if we close our eyes and pretend we haven't been given eternal life. As if we close our eyes and pretend we haven't been given Romans 8.28 that all things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Christians ought to be marked by gratitude. Number three. Christian, remember that the means that God uses to bring people to life spiritually is the message of the gospel of Jesus crucified. So Christian man, what message should you want to saturate your family with? Christian mother, what message should you most want your children to know and understand? Sunday school teachers, what message should be front and center in all your teaching? Christian friends, in all your relationships, if you have only one or two minutes of an opportunity to speak to someone you care about, about the things of God, what is the one message you want to get through if you possibly can? The message that God has promised to use to bring people to life. The Gospel. God is holy. We are enslaved, hell-deserving rebels. Jesus died and rose so that we would be set free from our slavery and our debt to justice would be paid. When we rest in Christ, we are reconciled to God, 
freed from hell, and we have the privilege of belonging to the greatest king and master the world has ever known. That message should be pumping through your bloodstream. When you're pricked, you bleed gospel. It should mean everything to you. Does it mean everything to you? What does it say if it doesn't mean everything to you? What does it say if you care more about Duke basketball than the gospel? Think about that. Or whatever it is for you. Finally, let me say a word directly to those of you in here who maybe are not sure where you stand with God. And those of you who know where you stand with God and you know you're, it's, it's not good. Let me be clear. If you are not resting in Christ this moment, if you are not trusting in Him for the forgiveness of sin, if you are not looking to Him for instruction about how to live your life, you are spiritually dead. Not only are you not doing these things, but the Bible says deep down you don't want to do these things. You like your sin. You like your drunkenness or your pornography or your pride or your dishonesty or your materialism. And you don't want to give it up. And because you don't want to give it up, you can't. You have no ability to become the kind of man or woman that truly blesses others. You have no real relationship with God. And He does not dwell in you. You have pitted yourself against Him by living as a trespasser. And even now, His holiness stands over you demanding that justice be served. It is no small thing to take the glorious God of the universe for granted. And it is no small thing to treat Him as if He is small. You may think your sins are minor compared to other people, that you are hurting no one but yourself, but dear friend, your sin, any and all your sin, is cosmic treason against the Most High God. Every part of creation is good. The rocks and the trees and the birds and the llamas and the only thing in all creation that is abhorrent in God's sight like a dark stain on His beautiful canvas is you and all those like you who live in sin. And God will wipe you away. You will be cast into hell. And even there, I think, you will probably continue to hate Him. And you will continue to despise Him. And He will continue to be faithful in His promise to reward your wickedness with condemnation. I do not say these things lightly. You may not believe in a literal, physical, eternal place of torment called hell. And quite frankly, that doesn't matter. Until you are willing to repent and turn to God... His goodness demands that you go there and go there you will. And I make no apologies for saying that. It's the truth. As foolish as it may sound in your ears, it is the truth. And yet God has made a way of salvation for you. See Christ on the cross. Hear Christ cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
see him suffering not just physical anguish, but the spiritual darkness of being cut off from his father. See him there for your sin and turn from your sin, hate your sin, and give yourself to the God who is right now loving you and offering you salvation. It is love that you're here this morning. So you're not here by accident. God has brought you here and He is loving you this instant. He is loving you this instant by presenting you with this call to turn to Him and rest in Him. Why would you refuse Him? He gave His Son. What more could He do to show His love? Why will you refuse to believe Why will you refuse to be baptized in His name? Are you you ashamed of the God of the universe? Are you unwilling to follow Him, He who is the wisest of all, He who is wisdom itself, He who has been far kinder to you than you have ever possibly deserved? Friend, if you go to hell, you will have no one to blame but yourself. Do you not see the chains on your arms and legs? how your sin binds you? Do you not see how there are sins in your life to which you are in bondage and you cannot escape? Don't you want to escape? Don't you want to be made fit for heaven? Don't you want to be the kind of person who is a blessing to those around them rather than a curse? See your slavery. See your bondage. Have you come to the place where you can say, I cannot live another moment being me? Then repent and believe. Turn from your old way of living and rest in Christ. Be baptized in His name. Get into a church and rejoice as he begins to conform you into the image of Christ. I don't know what else to say. I am here as a feeble ambassador of God pleading with you to be saved. I've told you what to do. Turn from your sin. Rest in Christ. Show it by being baptized and getting into a church. But I cannot do it for you. Your fate rests in your hands. What will you do?